Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. It's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, to know that God can take us from areas that he asks us not to go into, and even when we do, he's waiting for us to turn around. And Brooke's story is amazing. Once again, we want you to imagine if you sat in these chairs and shared with us how God has repurposed you, even if you're just beginning to understand it now, uh, that that's the journey we're on. Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. On your outline this morning, a mistake I made will show that most of the text is in Ephesians 1. We're going to take a quick trip back there, but we'll be in Ephesians 3 most of the morning. If you're visiting Christ Church today, my name's Mark. And I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at our church. And uh, we're glad that you're with us. We're studying in this series called Repurpose, looking at what the book of Ephesians teaches us about God's plan for each one of our lives. And so far in chapter 1, we've realized that Paul is expressing to us all that God has given us in the Holy Spirit in Jesus, what we possess. And in chapter 2, we learned that he's sharing with us our position with Christ, that we have been saved and called together to promote unity in life, to, to share the message of hope. And so today we continue on. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 3. We're going to read it in uh, two big sections. We're going to read the first 13 verses, and then we'll read 14 through 21. But I want you to notice both sections begin with a similar phrase. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, His holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, for which, or excuse me, which for ages past has, was kept hidden in God who created all things. His was intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through, and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you which are for your glory. Now that's a lengthy, dense passage of scripture. I get that. What I'd like to be able to do is break down the, the gist of it into three sections. Let's begin with the first. Paul talks about the challenge of faith. The challenge of our faith. He does this by pointing out when he says, for this reason. You have to remember this little pop quiz. If you weren't with us in the beginning weeks, well, Michael introduced us, Michael DeFazio introduced us to this when he said that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And Paul's first point is, if I may, he said, for this reason, and then in verse 13, he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering. Life is hard. Now, I know that that's not as profound as it should be because we all say it, 
but to understand it. Life is hard for good people. Life is hard for great people. Life is hard for bad people. Life is hard for people who can't catch a break, and life is hard for people who seem to catch every break. No matter what your perspective is, life is going to be hard. And Paul says, don't be discouraged. If you belong to Christ, life will be hard, but he will win. And it's what he wants us to understand as he introduces this. Paul's not writing a lament from prison. He's saying, yeah, life's hard, but the gospel still works. The gospel is still doing its work the way God wanted it to from the very beginning. You see, no book in the Bible, or no book in the world except the Bible, deals with suffering in a realistic way. No religion but Christianity deals with suffering in a real way. The Bible says clearly that life will be hard and that God will be there. And Paul said, it's no different than what I'm going through. The scriptures talk about the fact that suffering will take place. And Paul says, don't be discouraged. So our first word of good news this morning is that life will be difficult. And when it's difficult, never forget that God is bigger, that God is greater, and that God will not be stopped by difficult things. Then the second thing that Paul brings up in this passage is a word that he uses over and over and over. Let's call it the mystery of grace. The mystery of grace. This is a word that Paul uses when he's sharing with these non-Jewish people that God had invited them in to this great Jewish kingdom founded by this Jewish Messiah. He said it's a mystery. Verse 3, the mystery made known to me by revelation. You see, when you and I think of a mystery, and I love a mystery. I love going to mystery movies. I like reading mystery books on occasion. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite books in all the world, whenever we had a scholastic book club, I would order as many Encyclopedia Brown books as I could get my hands on. If you're under 30, look it up. It's worth your time. And I would buy those books, and I would try to guess the solution to the mystery before they revealed it. Now, I know some of my friends will actually get a mystery book, read the last chapter, and then read the book. Wow. Wow. Anyway, so, uh, mysteries. We're... we're we love to guess them, and at the end, most of us, when it's revealed to us, we're like, oh, I should have seen that and that and that and that. And that's what we think of when we think of a mystery. Paul doesn't use the word mystery like we use it. Paul's mystery is this. If God hadn't shown us what he was doing, we never would have figured it out on our own. That's why it was a mystery. It's not about our intelligence and our brilliance, and we missed one or two key sites. Even the disciples couldn't figure Jesus out. It wasn't until the cross and the empty grave that everybody went, oh, yeah. The mystery God revealed is so different than the mystery of the gospel the way we see it. Let me explain it another way. The gospel is not that if you live a good life, keep the Ten Commandments, and do more good than bad, that God will bless you, hear your prayers, and take you to heaven. That is not the gospel. If that were the gospel, it'd be no mystery. Everybody knows if you do more well than you do poorly, you're probably a good person. That's not the gospel. It's the American gospel, though. The number of people who think, I'm, better, I'm a better person than I used to be, I'm trying harder than I've ever tried, and I haven't done all the bad things that dude did. So God's got to let me in, right? No. God doesn't have to do anything. He chooses to do everything he does. 
And what he chooses to do is through the mystery of Jesus Christ. And here's the mystery. Jesus became little so we could become big. Jesus became weak so we could become strong. Jesus let himself be murdered so he could bring us life. It is a mystery that makes no sense. And it wasn't until the, the grave was open and Jesus reappeared that, reappeared at the revelation to the apostles that the disciples all went, oh, yeah. So when we make the gospel about what we do instead of what he did, we've not allowed God to show us the real mystery of the goodness of Christ. Because the truth is, if you spend your life trying to be better than you've been bad, you will be crushed when suffering comes. Because nothing you do good can keep suffering from coming your way. Life is hard. But the mystery of grace sees us through. Third part that I want to bring up to us is that Paul reveals to every one of us that we have the opportunity of our lifetime. It answers the question, why are we here? Paul said, I have been sent by God to preach the mystery to the Gentiles, to be able to go to those that are not Jewish and share with them that the kingdom is open to them. And it's not about keeping 10, 20, or 359 different commandments. It's about trusting that the work of Jesus Christ was sufficient. I'd like us to turn in our Bibles back to chapter 1 for just a moment to verses 9 and 10. And Michael DeFazio talked about this several weeks ago. In verses 9 and 10, it's interesting. Paul wrote these words when he was talking about what God is doing for us. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is God's plan. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and you'll see that God had everything working together. Relationships were in harmony. Creation was in harmony. There was no fear. There was no terror. There were no tears. And then man sinned, and everything began to unravel. Relationships unraveled. Relationship with God unraveled. Relationship with the animal world and the earth unraveled, and everything started to fall apart. And Paul said it was God's good will and his good intention that he would bring everything back together. He would stop the unraveling, and he would bind it all together around one person, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, know that that Jesus, that God is going to pull everything back together in, he, when, on that great day, all of it will go right back to the way God intended in paradise when Jesus sets everything right. When that moment happened, the question we must ask ourselves from chapter 1 as we enter chapter 3 is, how? It's not if, but how? Now I want to take you to verse 10 of chapter 3. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed. Through what? To the church. Now, looking up words this week in this particular text, I was led and told you need to look at the word manifold. So I looked up the word manifold, and it's an interesting word. It means brilliant, multidimensional, or multicolored, depending on the interpretation of it. It was a revelation that has levels to it. Now, I'm told if you take a pure, beautiful diamond and you hold it under bright lights, that you will see colors in it, in its clarity, colors and dimensions that you can't see. But I've never been rich enough to be around one of those diamonds. I'm gonna, not going to lie to you. I've seen an opal, though. And if you take an opal and you hold it at varying degrees 
in light. You will see shades and colors and a flow of color through it that's just brilliant, that God had created for the right moment to display itself. Here's what Paul said. How is God going to bring everything together under Jesus Christ as its authority? He's going to do it through the church. A church like this? I mean, honestly, there's not a seat occupied today that isn't occupied by a failure, by a sinner, by a person who was desperately all out until Jesus said, I'll bring you all in, right? And he's going he's gonna to show the beauty of his kingdom through a place like this? Yes, because even in its worst moments, there is something about the church that screams, if God didn't bring this together, it would all fall apart. It's through the church, through a group of saved sinners who struggle and are led by the Holy Spirit, who have understood the power available to them in God that displays to the world what the kingdom's going to look like on that day that Jesus brings it all together. It's going to be multi-ethnic, multi-gendered. It's going to be multi-gifted. It's all going to come together in a perfect way. It was God's goodwill that through the church, he would bring this all together. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. It is a mystery how it works, but it works. And even when life is hard, it's in the church. When I walked out first hour this morning and I stood right where I'm at and I watched Brooke's testimony, I thought it was phenomenal that within Brooke's testimony, how many times she mentioned her needing other people, gathering with people that are like-minded. And did you notice this young lady who had made choices that she no longer wanted to make came to a moment where she surrounded herself with people who understood, could show sympathy, but also give her strength. That Then that allowed her to become a young lady who's now giving sympathy, helping people in discouragement, and showing strength to them. Do you see, church, how the church works? Now, I have to give a full disclaimer. It's a little awkward for a preacher to talk about the value of the church when that's his occupation. A little self-serving. But I'll tell you this, long after I'm gone off this earth, the church will work. Not because of people like me, but because of a God who's bigger than all of our failures. You see, the church matters. George Barna, in a, in a survey done two years ago, said 81% of Americans say you can be a good Christian and not be part of a church. And I want to tell you this, if you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, he has no idea what they're talking about. If you read the writings of the Apostle Peter, he has no idea what they're speaking of. If you read the writings of the Apostle John, he has no idea what they're talking about. And if you read the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he has no idea what they're talking about. Yes, you can live a self-centered religious life on your own, but you can never fulfill the calling of your life to be called out into community, serving others. The church is not about what I get. The church is about what it draws from me to give to everybody else. The Bible does not understand a believer who's not active in the kingdom of God in a local called out community. Now, is it hard to be a part of a church? Oh my goodness, yes. Churches can be some of the most jacked up community groups you've ever met. Power-driven, possessive, legalistic, and short-minded. And that's right here. But at the end of the day, there's a beauty that overcomes all of our flaws. It is that the grace of Christ is uniform. That the truth of God is real. And that this matters. You see, life is going to be hard. Don't be discouraged. Hold on to faith. 
There's a mystery of grace that can only be seen through what God did in Jesus Christ. And together, we, as a community of called out, chosen, saved people, we live in that community so that the mystery of grace can be known more and more every day. Which leads me to where I want to conclude this morning. Let's begin and read verses 14 through 19. I want you to notice that Paul begins this section the same way he began verse 1. For this reason. I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. I want to talk to you this morning about the strength of real power. A power that will not let you be discouraged. A power that will reveal the mystery of Jesus. And a power that will draw you into a community that as strange as it can be at times is still the work of God. But you need to know this. Paul is not lecturing his students. He's not rebuking them or correcting them. Paul is pastoring a group of people that are facing tough times. He's writing a letter of encouragement and hope. This is why in verse 14 he says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father. He, he knows, Paul knows, that if this church thing is going to work, it has to be by submission to God and not by our own incredible minds and actions. He says, I kneel. And in verse 16, that he may strengthen you with power from his spirit. Paul knows that if this is going to work, it's not because God started us and then God stepped back and said, good luck. No, it's that every moment of our lives, we are in submission to the possessive power we have in who Jesus Christ is. But I want you to notice something. Here's what Paul prays for. If I, could, if I would preach a little sermon on his prayer, it would sound like this. He prayed that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. He prayed that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And he prayed that we would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. But if you're paying attention, all of those things are found in the first chapter when Paul says that he prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we would understand all of these things. In other words, why is Paul praying for things we already have? Why would Paul ask for something? If I said, dear Lord, take away my hair so I will not be encumbered by my pride. Pretty safe prayer done. But what he does is, Paul says, I want you to understand. If you remember, we had a sermon a few weeks ago where we talked about what it says, what we mean when we say, I know. Paul doesn't pray that they have knowledge. Paul doesn't pray that they have success. Paul doesn't pray that they have great energy. Paul prays a very specific prayer that they would, verse 17, that they would be rooted and established in love. Not in knowledge, not in pride, not in success, not in fame and accomplishment. He doesn't even talk about numbers. He just says, I pray that you will be deep in love, rooted and established, so that when life is hard, God's love remains. When, when the mystery of grace is difficult, the love of Christ reveals it. And when the church is hard, and community is difficult, and people are difficult, God's love is what binds us together. I pray that they'll be so deep in love that their faith will remain strong. Because if you read your New Testament, here's what you're going to learn. 
When you spend time understanding the depth of God's love for you, you're going to be less needy. You're going to be less afraid. You're going to be less self-absorbed. You're going to be less proud. When you understand God's love, you're going to be left less self-hating and shame-filled. And you'll be permanently changed by the love that's been expressed. That's why Paul prays in verse 18. He prays that not only would be firmly rooted in love, but that we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul says, I want you to understand, it is awaiting you. And to say that I know the love of God, but walk around in shame. To say I know the love of God and walk around in guilt. To say I know the love of God and walk around with a pride that says I'm better than that person because I've never done what they did. We don't understand love then. But when we're rooted in the love of God, we're better than nobody. And as Paul even said in this text, I'm the least of all people. And people say, oh, he's just being humble. No, he's telling the truth. Because I know the love of God and what he's had to forgive me of, I realize I'm better than no one. See, he wants us to grasp it. And Paul doesn't ask God to change our circumstances. He asks us to be able to relish and celebrate what we're in. You see, Paul wants you to know the Holy Spirit is preparing your heart to go deeper into the love of God every day. And when we do, the church, suffering, difficulties, all are opened up to us. And when they're opened up to us, we can see the work of God and feel the presence of God. In fact, in verse 16, Paul prays that we would be made open to this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. He also prays for our communities. I love this line, that they may have power together with all the saints. Christianity is not an isolated road we travel. It is a road we travel together as a family, united as one, not living separate existence. What I have is mine and what you have is yours. No, what we have together is all of the resources God's given us to promote his kingdom. You see, the gospel still works even though life is hard. But it's the gospel of God's love. You see, the Bible teaches us certain things. Paul says, I want them to grasp the height and depth and width of God's love. The word grasp there is also can be translated the word meditate. It's something you wrestle with. It's something you process. If you read your scriptures, the, in the Psalms, the Psalms tell us that two or three times a day they would pray. It would be a conversation with God. But prayer always comes from the word. You meditate on the word of God. You wrestle with the word of God. I've said this before, and I don't say it because it's the only thing I can think of. I'm just, to me, it's just something God keeps hounding me with. There are so many of us that read through the Bible in a year. And you've done it for 15, 16, 25 years. You read through the Bible. Every day you have a little book and you read a passage and you, you read through it. At the end of the year you say, yes, I read through the entire Bible. I would much rather, for instance, have you take one of the Gospels of Jesus and read that Gospel over and over and over for an entire year and meditate on words and phrases and sentences and verses and chapters than to rush through the Bible and say, I read it, but do you know the author? Have you meditated with the truth that he's trying to change your life? Because when you will grasp what God has been doing from the beginning, the Bible will become the voice of God, and then you speak to God in prayer, and then together you spend the day contemplating what God might do with that truth. 
So when Paul says, I just didn't want to rush by this. When Paul says that we may grasp the height and depth of God's love, you don't grasp that by shaking your head going, "Uh uh-huh. You grasp it by testing it, by trying it, by seeking it. What I'd like to do this morning is conclude by answering the question that Paul wants us to wrestle with. How wide is the love of God? Romans 8, 38, Paul would write these words. For I am convinced, allow me to pause, you're not convinced if you don't wrestle. Nobody was convinced until they came into the presence of God. Paul said, I've wrestled with this, and I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His conclusion is, there is nothing that can stretch us so far that God's love can't cover us. Then secondly, how, how long is the love of God? Paul prays, uh, writes a prayer out in Philippians chapter 1. He says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, how long is the love of God? It's going to go on forever. God did not start this he can, to fail because he cannot fail. He started this in Genesis chapter 3, and he will carry it to completion, and Jesus Christ is the completion. There's nothing we face that Jesus Christ isn't greater than. How deep is the way of God? All you have to do is hear Jesus cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All you have to do is hear the Old Testament prophets say, our ways are not God's ways. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. His, his thoughts are so much higher than ours. So how deep is the way of God? Listen to Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. It is a mystery why God has chosen to save the world the way he did. But let me tell you, when he un reveals the cross and the empty tomb. It makes sense in our hearts and souls. It was the work he needed to do to save all of us. And how high is the love of God? John 17, verse 22, Jesus said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. A love that began before you existed. A love that began before I existed and a love that will exist long after I don't. And my spirit is with my father. When I was a kid, one of the first funerals I ever remember was, uh, we called him Uncle Jim. He was my grandfather's brother, so he's my great uncle. And uh, he would come over to the house in the old, the old days, and he and my grandpa would sit on the back porch. And it was kind of funny. They were two typical guys. They would sit in these metal kind of rocking chairs you used to have that would sit out by patios. And they would sit in those chairs, and they wouldn't talk. And then one of them would get up and leave, and I guess it was a good conversation. They just sat, and they were family. And I remember Uncle Jim died of cancer, and it was one of the first funerals we went to. And I remember uh, just distinctly this, sitting in a, in a church like this in a pew, sitting next to my mom and my dad. And it wasn't a sad, he lived into his 90s. He had a good life, and they were sad to see him go, but he had bad health. And anyway, the church doors opened, and they brought in the casket. And I remember my father reaching over and saying, stand up. And I said, why? And he said, pay respects. And I'm thinking, he's dead. He doesn't know. My dad just said, stand up. And I looked, and people in the church stood. You see, there was a, there was a moment when someone who mattered entered into a place 
you stand in honor. Paul concludes the third chapter of Ephesians with a prayer. I'd like us to stand in honor of the person that's being prayed about. Would you stand, please? This is how Paul wants us to know about the love that we speak of because of the person we speak of. This is what Paul wrote. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And the church said, he is king of kings. And he has invited us into his kingdom. And it's not just so we get ours. It's so that the world knows the mystery of grace by the love of our God. And that, on this Mother's Day, is the love we need to wrestle with and celebrate. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.